Yeah, I think, listen, I think relationships are all you've got at the end of the day as a professional, no matter the income, your ups and downs, your contracts, your, you know, at at the end of the day, why I like theatre is that it's a team sport and particularly in Queensland, but in Australia overall, it's a really small team, like the, the network and the community is small. So if you can leave any gig being one of the nicest people in the room, you know, regardless of anything else, then you stand a good chance of being employed again. You're listening to An Actor and a Mic, a podcast focused on the often tumultuous but spectacular journeys of Australian artists. I welcome you to episode 19, where I interview David Burton. Dave is a well-known award-winning Queensland playwright, and he's written two books to date and spends a lot of his time as a youth art practitioner. And as you'll see, it's a lovely and chaotic interview that I thoroughly enjoyed conducting. Uh, I'm going to keep the intro short this time uh, because I get into a lot more detail at the start of the podcast. Uh, I'll let you go and see you for the mid-roll. Bye. Welcome to episode 19 of An Actor and a Mic. My name is Griffin Walsh, and in this interview, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to David Burton. Uh, so Dave Hello. is... <laughs> Hello. Sorry, Dave. don't interrupt, David. Shut <laughs> no, up. That's all good. Yeah, Jesus. I'm, I'm going to hype you up first before you appear. <laughs> I mean, shit. Oh, no, sorry. No swearing. Uh, yes, 30 seconds in. All right. <laughs> Already stuffed it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Um, so uh, can, can, can we go? Is that going to keep going? Yeah, you can, oh. you can absolutely keep going. Please keep okay. going. <laughs> Dave is an award-winning playwright, author, uh, a youth arts practitioner, and as I found out, he's also, at one time, he was a poet. Do you still do poetry, Dave? Where did you find that out? Oh, my goodness, Griffin. What, cor- what sick corner of the internet did you uncover? I do, I do poetry every now and then, but in a very casual, like, one-night stand kind of way. I'm not oh, yeah. a committed poet. Um, <laughs> I enjoy it. I wrote a, I wrote a very sad, very therapeutic and cathartic collection of poetry when I was a young man. It was very useful. That will never be, never see the light of day. I don't, I didn't even know how to access it at this point, but yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to say Dave no longer does poetry. <laughs> Good, <laughs> That's <is> correct. <laughs> I occasionally write nice arty stuff on Instagram, but that's about as deep as I go these days. Yes, that's uh, that's always a pleasure to read your four thirty thing. Uh, that was that was quite nice. Um, and then the next morning you were up at four thirty, so it's like, oh, cool. Coincidentally enough, I wrote a thing about being awake at four thirty in the morning, and then the next morning I woke up at four thirty in the morning. Mm. Yes. Uh, so Dave has also had a crazy amount of professionally produced plays. And I am, um, I'm very eager to speak to him about his career and his journey and, and lots of things. Dave has also a doctorate in, in the creative industries or creative writing from QUT. I put it down as master's um, and then he said I was wrong. So I'm glad that he corrected that. 
Because it's it's brand new. That's the only thing. I haven't taught like it, it is brand like I'm I'm copy editing my thesis as we talk. Not as oh. we talk, because that would be rude. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, it is the main thing that's taking up my life at the moment. Yeah, that um sounds like fun. I mean it sounds productive, but it doesn't sound <laughs> like fun. <laughs> if it's fun, you can do some of it. Great. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um anyway, um <laughs> So I, you've also released two books now, which is amazing. So one of them is How to Be Happy and the other is Man in the Water. Um, the most recent being Man in the Water, which I think released late last year. Yeah, correct. Dave is also a full-time lecturer at USQ currently, and he's worked at UQ, and he's written shows for Grin and Tonic, as well as QT Screen Project, and the list just keeps going. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. It's so nice to be here. What a seamless and uninterrupted introduction that was. That was fantastic. <laughs> uh, if, if that's the energy we're going to run through this podcast with, this hour is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> Just a I'll chaotic... down. No, I love it. Please. I'll settle down. Um, so there is, there is so much we could talk about. I, I do want to touch on first, you were apparently the skinniest mall Santa at one point in your life. Yeah, I was. Is that a job that you had? (laughs) There was a job I had. I did one shift. It wasn't a great time in my life, (laughs) to be honest. I don't know how, why or how they gave me the job, but they did. Oh, because I was a a youth arts facilitator and this was my early 20s straight out of uni and I didn't have much money and I needed money. And I thought, oh, that would be a job that would be fine. So I was a mall Santa for one shift in Maya, in Grand Central, in Toowoomba. And there's a code of conduct that you get inducted to as a mall Santa where you can't break character because you never know what kid is watching. You can't speak and you don't, and you, and it's quite bizarre. So I would like my first shift was very early December. It wasn't like people were out to see Santa and I didn't look good. Like I'm not a big guy anyway. I've never been a big guy. But as a young man, I was extremely skinny and I just did not look the part at all. And there were these two Christmas elves who were, who I'd never met before. And they were like 17, 18 years old. <laughs> and they just stood there the entire time gossiping about boys and stuff. And um, a couple of kids came and were terrified of me and burst into tears <laughs> without me saying anything because, you know, this was 10 years ago in 2010, even in 2010, but especially now, now that I'm a father to young kids, it's like the weirdness of getting small children to sit on men's laps is strange. It's very weird. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I left that shift and went, I don't think this is right for me. So yeah, that's that story. I'm glad that you didn't go back a second time. Cause that sounds a little bit horrific. It wasn't worth the money. It was also like minimal pay. It's not like it wasn't. Yeah. It was weird. A weird moment. Oh God. I just, I just love the fact that that's on your, that's in your life that you were at one point, you were a shopping mall center. I was the other job I hated, but I did was I was a, I was a botherer. I was on the main streets of Brisbane in the CBD for the wilderness society, which is a great charity that I really believe in, but trying to stop busy people on their lunch hour who are like, hike and it was the exact opposite of where i was in my life like these are people who are like nine to five as cbd like really well dressed and sharp and and i'm there as this hippie like 20 year old kid going the planet's on fire 
and just being ignored or sometimes abused for, for hours and hours and on there. And of course you work on commission and I, I didn't get any signups. I came close a couple of times, but then people would talk to me about how they couldn't afford a monthly thing. And I'd be like, yeah, totally, man. I get it. Like I'd never go in for the hard sell. Mm. <laughs> Planet's dying, but conscience. I understand your, your economy because I'm a fucking intersectionalist. And um, <laughs> that was, that was that. Yeah. Oh, that's, um, oh, it's just really refreshing to hear that, um, that, you know, that you weren't always like a, a very successful playwright <laughs> that you have oh. definitely had some ups and downs. <laughs> well, this is the thing, like success is like, I mean, you know, we can talk for an hour about success and what it means and stuff. But I, I think that when you're, when you're starting out, you have a, you have an idea, a naive idea in your head about what achievement is and what accomplishment is and the actual lived experience of living through being an arts practitioner in whatever form means that you're going to have ups and downs or not even ups and downs, but you're going to move side to side. You're going to have to do different skills. You're going to have to develop things. You're going to have to mold what you do to different things. Some projects will be great. Some will be not so good. Sometimes you'll have to do a thing you don't want to do. And sometimes you'll end up in a weird job that you are weirdly qualified for and go, how did I get here? It's been a while since I've had a mall center wilderness society level job, but I don't think like it's, it's never not possible. You know, it's never far away. You never get to a threshold where it's like, ah, I'm settled now. And I know uh, having spoken to and interviewed people who are more successful than I am, you know, famous people, people who you would know, people with long careers and seeing behind the curtain a little bit you go oh the 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 insecurity or the um the the instability the volatility of it all never quite goes away that the, the threshold the seeming threshold of I've, I've made it is a is is more fluid than you think unfortunately which is sad mm, yes that's um that's a recurring theme that comes up in these interviews is being like so everything to do with not only the gig economy, but also the fact that I'm probably never going to have a secure job. How do you deal with the stress of never being stable? Like that's, that's a recurring theme. Um, and and usually people are just like, yeah, you just do it. You're like, Oh, great. Cool. That's, that's great. (laughs) Well, you do. The other alternative is you don't, the alternative is you don't, you know, the alternative is that you go into a job and listen, many arts graduates do that. And it's fine. It works out for them. I think there are hybrid models, you know, particularly now post-COVID, but even even before this, the nine to five kind of lifestyle is also changing and hours are becoming more flexible. I think it's, and working from home is going to become more and more of a thing. I think it's more and more possible to have a hybridized career where you're doing creative arts and other stuff on top of that. You know, for me, I've always, like I'm a lecturer at USQ now and I've always mucked around and gotten a paycheck from teaching at different levels from a casual to a part-time to a full-time contract and switching back and forth. And that's helped me pay my rent. You know, I've been in part of, I've been a producer on Brisbane, on the Brisbane Writers Festival. I've, I was, I worked in a publishing company for a long time helping with them and and that that kind of level of uh, a job that doesn't kill your soul, that makes you feel like you're still contributing, but can also pay your rent. Finding that balance is really key, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think definitely being able to find 
Because it seems like if you are going to be an artist, you definitely need a stable source of income. And that, and the idea of that coming from a place, from a job that doesn't want to make you die is, yeah. is, is probably the hardest thing. But I feel like that's just super important. And it makes me less scared because it's like uh, you yeah. sort of just accept it and go, yeah, okay, that's, that's fine. I'll just, I have other interests. I might expand on them kind of thing. Totally. And the weird thing is that it's, I think it uh, is actually to put a positive spin on it. It is actually good for your artistry to have weird experiences, to go and mix with people that you wouldn't, because it's very easy as an artist. And I think you feel this a lot in drama school where it it just becomes your bubble and the theater you make or the, the, the art that you put out can lack as kind of accessibility or a knowledge of what other, because artists are really, we are special snowflakes. We do see the world a different way. We are trained in the liberal arts and we forget that not everybody is, you know? So I think it's important to keep up friendships, relationships, networks, work with a wider, broader contact so that you can draw because all of that feeds you. I also think that it's important to keep a stable job. It's also important. The great thing that nobody talks about is that artists just need to have knowledge of how finances work. Like it's really boring, but you need to know, you need to know what a savings account is. You need to know what your super is. You need to know what a, a, a sole trader ABN is. You need to know what a, and for all the emerging artists who are listening, panicking, like it, it's not something you need to know immediately, but I do think that it was something that really changed for me. I've seen other artists kind of in my peer group, not pay tax for 10 years and then suddenly realize they have a $30,000 debt. You know, I've, I've seen people just living on credit cards to the point that they get overwhelmed and then they do have no option but to go and work full time somewhere and just let their creative arts go. It's really, it's boring, but it's essential. I, I, I read about five or six years ago, the barefoot investor book. And it's like the thing, just read that, yep. listen to him and you'll be mostly fine. Like okay. that's my advice generally. That's um, actually, I don't think finances really come up on any of the episodes. So um, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, it's just like, it's just life stuff. It's just yeah. knowing how to make it, knowing how to, so you're not eating Uber Eats every night, like <laughs> knowing how to cook a week's worth of food that is like reasonable and healthy mm. and won't break the back, you know, shit like that the stuff. Sorry. <laughs> stuff like that that you're going to um it's stuff like that that will help you in the long run you know mm. in a powerful way um that 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 you learn from talking to other people from reading a little bit and just doing a lot of trial and error i i want to backpedal a little bit and focus sure. more in on you and i would love to st- <laughs> i would i, I would love to well i i'm sure other people would be interested in it um Maybe. Do you have an interesting life, Dave? Do you think you have an interesting life? I wrote a book about my life. So yeah. that if that doesn't tell you something about my superiority complex, then I don't know what else does. <laughs> or my arrogance about my own lived experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, perfect. Um, let's talk about that childhood then. Correct. Um, were, you, were you always interested in the arts? Uh, yeah, broadly speaking, I was. My parents were both teachers... But my father was, is an amateur musician and songwriter that kind of flirted with professional songwriting and and kind of gigging in pubs. Uh, 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 Now and then he kind of zipped in and out of that pool. So 
but he was deeply passionate about pop culture, about certain kind of niches of pop culture and kind of encouraged that passion in me. But I read a lot. I was, I was a kid that learned how to read early and just read a ton and just had nerdy experiences. I can remember getting cable at, you know, getting more than five channels, which sounds like I'm ancient, but I am now more than five channels on television and sat and finding late one night, a production of Hamlet on some godforsaken Foxtel channel. And that was the first time I'd encountered Shakespeare. And I was younger than 12. I must've been 10 or 11, but watch that and going, Holy cow, like my brain kind of exploding. And that was what I stayed up late to watch. I should have been watching porn or something far more transgressive, like normal 11 year olds, but I was watching Shakespeare and just falling in love with that. I can remember reading Paul Jennings and Morris Gleitzman at age eight and going, Oh, I want to do this. Like I want to write, I want to write, I want to write stories. I want to make people laugh. I want to do interesting uh, to, to have that as a career possibility. I, I can't really recall a time where I didn't want to do that. Yeah. yeah. And in school, it seemed like you were leaning more heavily into, um, into performing arts though. And was that you think because they didn't have a writing thing at the time or do you think? That, yeah, mostly. Yeah. I, I liked my, I liked my English teacher a lot and I learned a lot from English, but drama was a space that saved me. I was a, I was a troubled kid. I didn't have a great home life. My mental health was pretty appalling. I was bullied, you know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse is all part of my story. So but I, by the time I was 14 and stumbling into a drama classroom and going, oh my God, there's other models for masculinity here. There's a way that I can express myself that felt very like I was funny. I figured out I could be funny. And that was like, bing. And so from that point on, I was like, I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor. Like that was a strong beating thing until I went to an acting audition. <laughs> Oh no, an acting audition at USQ because I auditioned for the acting program. Back, back in those days, the USQ had a stage management technical program, a theatre studies program, which is like general theatre knowledge stuff and the acting program. And all of them were quite quarantined from one another and, and kind of siloed off. And you auditioned for the acting program before entry and it was quite competitive. And I was in a room with, with Scott Alderdice and, and Bernadette Pride and I did a monologue from Cozzy Doug, where he lights a cat on fire, which mm. is a really famous kind of audition monologue. And Scott gave me the direction to be threatening, to be intimidating. I kind of played crazy. You know, I'm seven. I'm a 17 year old kid. I kind of played crazy, like funny. And he was like, "Yeah, be threatened. Like it's about violence. You can be threatening." And mm. pushed me to do it. Um, and I was incapable of it. I kind of shrunk and crumbled and left the room going, Oh, I didn't like, I tried, but I could tell instantly it's like this, that awful feeling you get in an audition where it's like, this isn't right. Mm. Um, and then I walked across the hallway to Janet McDonald to do my interview for theater studies, where we talked about plays and stuff I was writing and things. Like that. And I was like, Oh, okay. This is far. This is where I'm meant to be acting. Acting requires, cause I've, I'm married an actor. And as I've grown older and gotten to know actors and, um, have a deeper relationship with them and their craft and understanding of what they do. Acting requires a connection to and an easy access to a vulnerability and a knowledge of yourself 
around a really disciplined craft, but it was that kind of, which is why I think acting schools and, and, and acting courses can be really vulnerable, really intense places and people can have a lot of mixed experiences in them. And I came out of it going uh, and, and watching other students go through it and friends of mine and stuff at the time as a 17 year old, I didn't have the mental robustness mm. to deal with an acting course. And even through most of my twenties, I don't think, I think I, what I was attracted to in high school was being a performer. And being a performer and an actor is a very different thing. And I think I'm still a good performer. I think I'm a capable, competent performer. I can host a thing. I can MC a thing. I can be for like, I figured out that that's kind of where my lane is. If I wanted to be an actor, I could possibly now with the mental robustness and a kind of bit of maturity, maybe go back to acting school now. And I might come out a half decent actor. But at the time, that awful thing they tell you in high school, which is, well, maybe take a year, maybe mature, maybe travel the world, you know, that, but you go, I want to be an actor now. But really, it's like you're 17 or 18. It's such a vulnerable time. So I'm, I'm glad that I didn't go in, into that. Anyway, that was a detour. But there you go. Yeah, no, that's... That um... in a while. That, that covered on everything um, that, that <laughs> like you, you just was like, okay, well, the interview's done. Thank you very much, Dave. Great. Okay, um, good, good. I <laughs> cut it off for you. No, that's, um, it's quite interesting that it, like your reflections on being an actor now and the yeah. idea that it required, as you said, a, a sort of robustness and a maturity. And I think that's very true. And the fact that you are now willing to admit that maybe you could go back and become a semi-decent actor is <laughs> is quite interesting as well. It's it's kind of one of those things that feels like anyone has the potential to be an actor, but it's just whether you have a self-awareness and an ability to self-reflect yeah. and and to be able to see the world in a different way. And that requires certain maturities, which different people have different levels of, obviously. Um, yeah, and different life experience. And and to be honest with you, I think it's the same across any art form. You know, I could say much the same about being a writer, really, um, in, in different ways. It's just a slightly different colour to it. I, I, you, you look at the, the actors or the artists that you really, really admire, and something does happen around the 30s, 40s age mark where there's maturity and there's life experience, and that's when transformational possibilities happen you know that's when you get to see ian mckellen's the judy dentures the meryl streeps the 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 dustin hoffman's the you know the big american overseas or even the nicole kimmons or russell Crowe. Da, 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 da. it's really rare for someone in this who are 17 or 18 or in their 20s to really hit it big across multiple roles sometimes you get that beautiful thing of the right role hits the right person at the right time you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, oh, that girl whose name I forgot, Millie Bobby Brown, like the girl, the girl in Stranger Things. It's like mm. she's born to, she can play that part right now. And it's, it, she's just got that in her. It'll be interesting to see how her career evolves and how transformable she is. You know, Daniel Radcliffe as a young performer has talked openly about struggling to find that. But, you know, I think he will be an amazing actor, but it will be 10 or 15 years where he suddenly he suddenly turns into something else and we we are all capable of looking at him and not seeing harry potter you know what i mean so mm. i think uh i think something does change as you mature which i which 
and that's not to discourage young performers. I think as a young performer and as a young, as a student and so on, it's helpful to have the perspective because you're so hungry and you want to be successful right out of the gate and to go, it is okay if you're not successful right out of the gate. In fact, sometimes that might be preferable. It's, mm. it's, it's okay and it's healthy and it's good to take some time and things take the time they take. Yeah. That's a, no, yeah, that's, I, I love that. Um, it gives that little bit of, bit of hope, but like, I want it now, Dave, I want it now. I don't want to be 40. I, I know. Be, well, me too. Me too. But I'm 33 and I'm looking at the stuff I've written and I know everything I write, I'm like, this is the best I've ever written. You know, like I, I look at stuff that I write 10, 15 years ago and I look at it with affection and fondness, but I go, oh, I wouldn't do that now. Or even things I wrote 12 months ago or 18 months ago, you know, I, there's a, there's not a cringe. I've learned to let go of cringing and kind of forgive myself a bit, but to go, and you know, I knew that at the time, there are ideas I've had for plays where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not skilled enough to write that yet. That that's something that'll be later on down the line. You know, that's cool. There's a sense that you do, you do keep developing. You do, you don't stop, you know, you keep growing. I think I um I think I had my little light bulb moment the other day. I was speaking to a friend, um, and we were just talking about how how what it what it's like to be a forty year old. Let's do let's do twenty one year old men in a car talking about this, <laughs> and we were um because we were just thinking about how we could not have imagined where we could be two years ago. So nineteen year old Griffin yeah. is like yeah I could not comprehend the things that I know now. Um, sure. because not only did I not know them, but I didn't have access to be able to know them. Like it was so far out of my spheres. So then we applied it to like, Oh, well then imagine if in two years that has happened to me, maybe I should start listening to 40 year olds because they have 20 years of that. And it's like, maybe they have ideas that I purely just couldn't even touch on right now, just because they're not in my. Absolutely. Like, so Absolutely. that's the way I've been thinking about it. Yeah. But it's, it's so true. It's that it happens so fast, particularly, particularly when you're in that like 17 to 25 year old time, but even more so beyond, I mean, hopefully you start to get a little bit more confidence in, in once you're five, six, seven years into a professional career, but you still keep going, you know, and different things happen. And, and it's worth saying as well, cause I don't feel like it gets said enough in these kind of professional conversations, but because your artistry lives so close to your personal life, you have personal experiences too. Like you're going to, you're going to have sex with more people. You're going to fall in love. You're going to, you're going to lose people. You're going to have heartbreak. You're going to have interesting moments with your family. You're going to have all this stuff's going to happen. And all of that is going to challenge you in new emotional, interesting ways. And, and, and you're going to grow and develop through that. And your artistry runs parallel or sometimes straight perpendicular straight straight through that experience as well and that develops you into the artist you are um Mm. just as much as anything else does that's that's kind of i I love that just that idea that's really exciting the idea that as i experience things the way i produce art and show it to other people and affect those other people will also change hopefully for the better Mm. um (laughs) that's right Um, that's the hope yeah. 
Hello, and welcome to the mid-roll. If you celebrate Halloween, I hope you had a safe and enjoyable night. I definitely did. Uh, it's been a while since uh, people in my circles have felt comfortable hosting a large event and obviously keeping things in regulations, but regardless, it was nice to be socially active again. So I hope you enjoyed your Halloween. Uh, it feels like I haven't released an episode in ages, uh, which is not the truth because I'm still keeping up with fortnightly releases, which I'm actually quite proud of. It feels like I haven't released an episode in ages because it has been a massive two weeks for me, uh, finishing assessments and whatnot, and now I'm heading into the final week of assessment, which is going to be very interesting. I have a few performances to show for Tuesday, and then it's a lot of reflective practice kind of stuff to show the semester out, so that'll be fun. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying the episode. Uh, I just wanted to make you aware, if you're not already, of two things. Uh, one being QT, uh, so Queensland Theatre. They had their first live performance again since lockdown, and it showed last night, actually, and it's, it's called Mouthpiece, uh, and it's exciting to see live theatre in Queensland coming back. Uh, and literally 50 minutes ago, uh, they also released their 2021 season, uh, which is something to look forward to for next year. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring attention to is Dave's newest podcast. It's at the episode six uh, as of this release. And uh, particularly for the uh, gentlemen of the audience, it's, I think it's worth going over there and, and giving it a listen. Uh, it's this unbelievably vulnerable lo-fi podcast where Dave speaks from his blog about his own experiences through his life, uh, living as a man. He speaks about all kinds of things, including body image. And the most recent one is about the question, uh, are men really more violent? It's a genuinely great podcast to bring up ideas and issues you may be having. And, and my suggestion is letting a friend know and then you two can discuss the topics brought on by the podcast. And, and you can speak to that friend and use this podcast as a prompt to discuss things that are not easily brought up in conversation. Uh, I think it brings up a lot of good points and, and I think it's critical for men to reflect on a lot of the ideas brought up. And having a friend figure that stuff out with always helps. I'll link all these things in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I hope you're enjoying the episode. I'll see you at the end. Bye. I want to ask about why you got into writing stage plays rather than screenplays. Sure. Yeah, people ask me this and I give a really unsatisfying answer, which is that screen never seemed like an option to me, oh. which is then that people look at me and they go, and theatre was, um, <laughs> which is weird. But I think because it was just so, so cooked in high school, the drama classroom was linked to theatre and then there was a theatre program at USQ. And at the time, the theatre program at USQ had more credibility and more kind of guts behind it than the film and television course and I wasn't interested in the film and television course it didn't really register on my radar and and then sometime in second year of uni I was really like I want to be a playwright I want to write plays um, and that happened and I've occasionally flirted with the idea of doing film and television to varying degrees I've 
I've consulted on stuff, I've pitched stuff and, 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 it, and, and it may happen yet. But it does seem there's a bit of a wall there in terms of industry. I think it's better now than it was. There's more film and television production happening in Queensland. Although I did go down to Sydney for a while and I've spent some time in Melbourne and I've, I've pitched to television rooms and stuff. But I've also realised over time that, that I'm not well suited to writing home and away. And that is honest to God, not a disparagement of home and away or, or Australian TV drama. That's just not where my heart lies and the work that would be required and the hard deadlines, but the good money, but the hard deadlines and the kind of work that is required to climb that ladder to a certain extent just doesn't, it's not where my values are. As I've gotten older, I've, I've gotten better at articulating what I can contribute. And what I can contribute is more stuffed based in theatre, but particularly community arts. And particularly that's where I've got a set of skills that is A, valuable economically to the market, um, but B, is also just the person I am at the moment. But that's not to say, because every, every so often a film producer will get in touch and be like, hey, you should pitch, you should think about da 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 And if I've got time, I throw a document together and I do something. It's just that nothing's caught fire yet. And it may do. From my experience of talking to other screenwriters and stuff, it's like you, you spend a lot of time just waiting, like sending pictures out and things float around and you know, a thing may get developed, but then it's stuck in development for years. And da, 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 da. you know, there's a web series floating around that I've written with Claire Christian that might find a home one day. There's, there's different, different people have talked to me at different times about adapting certain plays and, and, and those conversations have gotten so far, you know, but yeah, it, it, it's just never something that's really struck me on the head. Yeah, I, I don't think that was not a satisfying answer at all. I think that was, that makes complete sense. The, the whole idea of that it never really crossed your path, that you were kind of just on a path that just drama kept being thrown at you and theatre kept being thrown at you. So you were like, okay, yeah. yep, this is, yep, sure. And then I feel like you've built such a network around it now that a screenplay could be a, a, a new venture in the future, but it's, yeah, it, it feels like, you are fairly cemented in your playwriting in in yeah. Australia. Yeah, there's this yeah. Uh, there's this interesting thing that theatre has, which is that you've got to be slightly entrepreneurial in pitching stuff. I feel more of that pressure in screenwriting world. In screenwriting world, where I've looked to, you've got to have a kind of producer's hat on, even more so than in theatre. Theatre you have to, but in theatre you're dealing with small budgets of like, you know. So my early independent stuff was like budgets 20 grand or less, which sounds huge, but it's nothing. And, and to, um, to make stuff and make stuff happen and to handle managing people and all that kind of stuff, which I've done and am doing and will do again, you know, film is a different light. You know, you're talking about millions of dollars, you know, $1.5 million is a small film budget. You're talking about aspects of production that I have no idea about. You're talking about, Direct, you know, I've sat in meetings and they are like, who do you want to direct? And it's like, well, I, I don't know any film direct, you know, and that's the God honest truth. I just, I don't know. I need a mentor, you know, mm. and I, I've, I've hooked up with some mentors and stuff, but it's just, it all, that all feels, that conversation for me all feels like at level one and it may progress and it may grow over time. I don't know. And I'm happy to keep kind of feeding it. 
Mm. But I, I have, I am busy. I've got other stuff as well. <laughs> yes. Very, very busy as I understand it. Um, I, I'd like to talk about your, your ideas on the Australian, on, on Australian plays right now. And in my understanding, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> in my understanding, a lot of like the highly regarded theater shown in Australia, it tends to be a lot more naturalistic in the way that it's performed and, and produced. So uh, my belief is that naturalism on stage is brilliant, but at times it can be very restricting. Um, So I wanted to ask if you would agree with that. And then I wanted to add a little thing on the end that do you dislike writing naturalistic plays? Ah, okay. Well, hmm. I would push back a little bit against... When we're talking about main stage theatre companies, when we're talking about big guns, when we're talking about La Boite, um, Queensland Theatre, Sydney Theatre Company, Belvoir, Griffin, Melbourne Theatre Company, Black Swan, you know, all those guys, all the big ones. I push back a little against the classification of naturalism and realism mm. only because I'm a theatre nerd. And naturalism and realism are terms that come from a very specific point in theatre history, which is late 19th century Russian writers, you know, Chekhov, all those dudes. And they come with a very particular set of tenants. What Australian, and Australian theatre isn't doing that a lot of the time. A lot of what Australian theatre is doing is that mixed with kind of drama from the Reformation period with a bit of melodrama to create a pleasant night out at the theatre that often emphasises comedy So, you know, you think of David Williamson, you think of Joanna Murray-Smith, you think of those big playwrights who Australia tends to produce once or twice a year at least across multiple different companies, or you even think of some of the cutting edge or innovative playwrights now like Nakia Louie, like Michelle Law, some of these more diverse voices, they still lean into comedy. They lean into plays that are accessible to a general public and go move forward in a straight line, have a clear cause and effect. And, and I think that's what some people refer to as realism or naturalism, but it's not because realism and naturalism doesn't play the gag as heavy, can be quite restrained, can quite be quite quiet. It's usually very difficult to direct and write really well. I agree with you. I think it can be absolutely powerful as can, you know, sitcom like theatre and com- and, and theatre that leads with comedy and, a, you know, quote-unquote pleasant night out with one set and forward momentum and kind of um, clear cause and effect, etc. I think that's all fine. And I think it is one style that we are obsessed with or that we that is very commercially accessible and very sellable and isn't too confronting. Australian theatre on the whole is very, very conservative. We're only now getting to freaking gender balance in terms Mm. of the playwrights that are represented only now really we're only now getting to a proper like acknowledgement of diverse foot you know my partner was in single asian female and um that was put on la boite and my good friend claire christian directed that show written by michelle law and it premiered at la boite a couple of years ago and then it was on at belvoir theater company in sydney and belvoir is like one of the it's in sydney it's one of the leading theater companies in australia they had never before had a main stage work about 
Asian Australians, which just is mind blowing when you consider the site. And this is like 2018, 2019, right? So just in terms of representation, we're so conservative. And I think in terms of style and single Asian female is a well-written, beautiful piece of theater, but it is straightforward. It is a sitcom scenes are short. It moves along. It's a romantic comedy. It's got a clear cause and effect. And its strength, its political strength lies in the very act of representation, the very act that it's just Asian Australians on stage telling a story. I think it is an underutilization of theatre to think that that is all theatre is. Most Australians, if they have any contact with theatre, tend to have a musical theatre experience and most theatre people are capable of recognising that that's a very small margin of theatre. If you're lucky, those people also have enough money to then go to a main stage theatre show where chances are they're going to see something that, you know, what, what you or many people call naturalism or realism, but is, is comedy-based, that type of theatre I was describing. But that is, to me, 10% of what theatre can do. And the value of what theatre can do is in that theatre presents this really interesting challenge. Having written novels now and other stuff and even screen, theatre operates on multiple levels to create meaning. Um, as screen does too, but screen has a very set set of instruments and tools to do that with. Theatre has almost infinite tools to do it with. You can have a story, but how you tell that story in terms of A, production level, but B, also just the sheer size of the room you're in, how many actors you use on stage, how you use costuming, but then also dramaturgical elements, how you treat time, how you treat cast doubling, whether people talk to the audience, whether they sit in the audience, what entrances and exits do you use? What time of day do you put the show on? All of those types of things, whether you use AV, what images there are, whether you call in references to Brecht or Carol Churchill or Beckett, or is it circular? Is the, is the conversation 20 minutes long? Is it two minute scenes? Is it, do we have characters or is it just dark? Like all of those are possible in theatre. All of that is possible to create meaning for the playwright and what the playwright wants to say. And that is, that is you know, novels, avant-garde novels come close, but theatre can do it because theatre can be funny, approachable. You sit in the dark with a group of people and experience a thing that is very collaborative, designed by playwright and director and actors. And there's an infinite set of tools to your disposal. I've just spent, for my new play, I've just spent like two two or three weeks in and out of creative development. And the discussion we're having is not a discussion you could have when you're talking about that I, that I discuss with an editor on a novel or even a producer on a screenplay. It's about the, the levels of reality and where, and where does magic enter the world and how is that represented on stage and everything has a metaphor behind it. And the challenge to me constantly as a playwright is what meaning do I want to give to the audience? What do I want to provoke? What do I want to ask? Because theatre at its heart is dangerous. It is a form that wants you to be more political than the other things because it forces the playwright and the director to go, I want to construe this meaning or this idea anyway that's my blab about that but all of that is like constantly going all of that is constantly kind of um bubbling along in your head as a playwright when you're working on something and i just haven't encountered that same dialogue which so it's really hard it's what makes playwriting really really hard in my mind it's harder than writing a novel writing novels are long and lonely but there's a, there's a structure there. At the end of the day, you've got words on a page. 
So you create images, whereas theater, you've got 8 million different tools. So, yeah. I think um, going back to the last question I asked about screenplays compared to, um, to plays, I think um, what you, you just answered it again with how passionately you just spoke about what you can do with yeah. theater. That was, uh, that was a little bit lovely. That was <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. That was um, every so often I surprise myself. I go, oh yeah, there's life still in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's I right. Still... I am passionate about the art form. That's right. I'm not just a hollow shell. Ha ha. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's amazing. Just it, it. Every time I speak to people on this goddamn podcast, they and when they get passionate, I'm like, I, I should just do their profession. That's yep. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. That's what. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> like. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Um, You'll end up doing all of it. You'll end up doing everything. Inevitably, yeah. you do. Yeah. You know. That's uh, yay. Busy. <laughs> um, I, I, I'd like to move on to, um, to, uh, to Claire Christian now. Um, oh, yes. So um, I don't know if you're aware of who she is. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, a- tell me about her again. <laughs> Um, so you spend a fair amount of time with Claire Christian, yeah. who I would dare say yeah. you would consider a good friend of yours. Um, Indeed. And so Claire is a writer within the Brisbane area and the two of you have co-written a number of productions and a bunch of things, mm-hmm. um, in, mm-hmm. including Hedonism's second album, The Landmine is Me and um, Define Adult, which was alongside the Labot Young Acting Company. Yeah. Um, and all this to say is that you've made a very powerful relationship with a similarly, similar, similarly minded individual. Yeah. So how important do you think it is for like as an Australian artist and how beneficial do you think it is to find a relationship like this with a fellow artist? Something similar that you have with Claire now. Yeah, I think, listen, I think relationships are all you've got at the end of the day as a professional, no matter the income, your ups and downs, your contracts, your, you know, at at the end of the day, why I like theatre is that it's a team sport and particularly in Queensland, but in Australia overall, it's a really small team, like the, the network and the community is small. So if you can leave any gig being one of the nicest people in the room, you know, regardless of anything else, then you stand a good chance of being employed again. Um, So I think maintaining healthy relationships and good relationships is good. The relationship I have with Claire is special because we're two completely different artists, I think, in that our tastes are different, uh, our aesthetic is different, but our politics and values are the same. We, we're both deeply passionate about community. We're both deeply passionate about young people. And because of because our values match, that our aesthetic is different, we're able to talk to each other from a place of mutual respect and admiration and listen to each other and contribute things and, and learn a lot from each other. You know, I've learned a lot from Claire. I learned, Claire taught me about character more than anything else. We've been, we've been friends for 10 or 11 years at this point. And... Um, and I wrote plays that were really heady and, and plot heavy. And she came in with this beautiful, this was in the Queensland Theatre Company's Young Playwrights Program where we met 
and we both won entry into it. And she won, came through with this exquisite like character piece um, that was just about a group of kids that was just about year ones going through their first year at school, which remains one of my favourite pieces of theatre ever, unproduced. Um, and it, it's just beautiful. And I was kind of stunned by that. But I do think it's important, you know, and we went, we've gone through different stages of figuring out where we, because we like spending time together and we like making stuff together and finding the right thing for us to do. Right now it's the podcast. We have a podcast called My Mate Reckons, which is a great, easy thing for us to do, to put content out there. That we've, got a, we've got a loyal bunch of listeners that write to us and and when we've got stuff to promote there's a channel there for us to promote it you know and share in each other's and keep us connected and making something she's gone on to write books she's got a new book coming out next month that's very romantic comedy very very romancy a queer romance which is beautiful and so well written and fantastic and and again i admire it because it's something i could never write what's Um, what's the book called it's called it's been a pleasure noni blake cool and it's a sexy fun like summer read romp thing um so so she's fantastic but i i do think that artistic relationships can get really intense for for good or ill and it's been a lesson i've learned over 10 or 11 years not just with claire but with other people i have close artistic relationships with that i those relationships are less public than the relationship i have with claire to maintain a sense of healthy respect and understand that those relationships operating at that intensity aren't sustainable in artistic projects you you have on any production you become a family for eight weeks or 10 weeks maybe a bit longer if you're lucky and then you separate and you go and there can be a pressure finding how your friends or finding how you talk outside of that environment is a skill and something that requires emotional intelligence and like transparency and da 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 and figuring out when you have a new project, do I want to call this person onto it? You know, there was a stage there early on where Claire and I wanted to do everything together. And we figured out slowly that that's not ideal. That's not, that's not ideal. You can't do that. You know, that we are different people and we've got different goals and we want to do different things and we can celebrate each other's successes and we can figure out what it's, it's the same. I have close relationships with, Jason Clarwine, who's the artistic director of Grin and Tonic, and Travis Dowling, who's been many things, but has ended up high up in the chain of Queensland Theatre Company. And they're two guys and two blokes who I love and adore and are good mates of mine. And a part of me wants them to direct everything I ever write ever, but that's boring and not challenging to me and not challenging to them. And um, it would stop us all from growing and, and being interesting. So it, you know, I think those relationships are so important and you've got to maintain those. And when you find something good, hang on to it, but figuring out how your friends, where work fits in, what are the right work projects to work together on is is a constantly evolving process that you've got to be mindful of. On your, on your journey, when you end up finding someone who has those similar values to you and you realize you can work really well together, I think it makes mm. sense that there's an initial like hard tethering that goes on. Cause you're like, Holy crap. I don't have to do this alone anymore. You let's you do fall this. in love. Yeah. yeah. And, and that collaboration, but you're saying that you've almost found that you have to reject that hard tether just a little bit in the interest of 
growing and keeping yourself not predictable. That's just, yeah, that's just my experience or not, not even predictable, but figuring out who you are separate from other people, I think is really important. Like trying to build healthy relationships means building relationships that aren't entirely codependent. And that means professional ones too, you know, there are a lot of writing teams that write really well together and they will write really well together forevermore. But it's also, you know, and musician, you know, bands that exist and, and the only, the only way they're really great is when they come together and they're better than the sum of their parts. You know, in my experience with Claire specifically, we are different artists and there's, we will write together again and we're great. And I, we really enjoy our time together, but it would be a mistake for on her part certainly to think that she could write a romance novel with me or to go i'm not going to do this thing because i should do it with that and, and vice versa you know i don't that wouldn't be fair to either of us and and it's the same with those other guys i mentioned it's like it's not necessarily being afraid of being predictable it's going you in any relationship you turn into a version of yourself but that is just one version of yourself and you need to figure out who you are by yourself and who you are when you work with others and da, 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 da. and all of that helps with a diversity of experience that makes you you know i mean claire and i are both white you know it would be it would be injury to our imaginations artistically and our experience if we only ever of course if we only ever worked with each other and kept a white experience you know travis dowling and jason clawine are also straight white men it would be hideous if if i only ever worked with straight like can you imagine that would be awful so it's um you you've got to keep your mind open about that i do think it's a very particularly I, I will say in my experience of observing other people and i think knowing myself the people you find at uni and in those first years because you feel because you're in a place of constant instability and constant volatility that love and that intensity is hard and falls fast and you get attached very quickly and there are so many people i've seen who go we are the crew and we're going to do this and this is our thing and we're we are this type of experience and we're going to do this thing. And then inevitably they either fall apart in third year and they have fights within each other or they, or straight after they graduate, they, the rubber hits the road and friendships fall apart and things happen da, 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 because you can't, you can't sustain that level of intensity and that, mm. that level of love for each other. You've got to come together and go away and come together and go away. You know, I think that's a more sustainable pattern. That's um, it's that's not something I ever thought I ever thought of. There you go. There's a thought that you have now given me that will now mature me in some way. That's um, oh well, I hope. Yes. Or it will either make you set about destroying all of your relationships because you're like, no, I've got to be independent of all. I have things. to not love anyone. That's what Dave <laughs> said. That's the message I'm giving. <laughs> that's the message I'm giving. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure i'm happy to ask the last question if if that's okay okay sure i'm sorry i blab on so much blabbing on is not a problem why do friggin artists my god when they go on on these passionate tangents they always apologize afterwards because i've been conscious i'm conscious of you and you running a podcast and you want to ask questions and then i know because i've hosted things and then people run off and you're like well i can't ask that that's gone right that time's done that's all right it's okay i love it's not like you you rambled on about like yeah and then i had a cat 
And then like I didn't really like the cat. Like it's there's there's so much in. Let that me tell that. you about this cat. Yeah, and then I lit it on fire in front of Scott Alderdice. <laughs> that was my audition. Uh, and yeah, no, I just think that there are so many things that you can take from that. When and when having it on a podcast, absolute drivel doesn't sound like absolute drivel because you can take sections of it and listen to that section intently and play it back and play it back and it's like everything can have meaning to it within. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to ask the last question, which is, um, okay. If, if you could give advice to your younger self, um, yeah. And with all the, with all the things you have learned so far and all these, these maturities and and not loving anyone anymore, what would you tell, (laughs) tell young Dave? Well, listen, there's a lot of stuff I would tell him, but in in particular with, you know, I think about me 10, 15 years ago, and studying or or just in the first few years of my career, the sooner you can learn, the sooner I can learn. And it is a process I, I keep on learning that the joy of what you do and finding the joy in what you do means that it is sustainable and means because if it's joyful, you can keep going and, and the sustainability of it comes from, comes from that joyful place. The issue is that with so much in artistic careers, there is so much that's out of your control. You're so putting yourself over into how people perceive you, how you are received, whether there's bums on seats, whether a project gets funded, all of that stuff is is entire, almost entirely outside your control. So you can't find it's unsustainable to place joy or to place the reason why you do things in other people. The joy has to come from you doing the thing, you making the thing. So if you're a writer, just write. And that is your definition of success. You write, you get up and you write. And if you've written something today, you are successful. And if you act, then you go into a rehearsal room and you muck around with mates or you learn a new monologue or you set yourself a task of learning 10 Shakespearean sonnets this week or whatever, or you're going to look at these films and pull apart this, this actor's performance or something, or you're going to go into the room and rehearse and have fun with people and explore. Then that's what is sustainable because everything else isn't real because it's not under your control. It's not real stuff, you know? And I think as a young person going into the arts, you can be misled thinking that fame is the goal and that fame equals success. That is so problematic because fame, first of all, isn't fulfilling. I've met and worked with famous people. I can tell you it doesn't change your life or change who you are inside. And second of all, it's not why you're here because if you want to be famous, you'd work on social media and you'd go to a reality show. But you are hopefully finding joy in the, in the craft and doing what you do and trying to do it as well as you possibly can. And that's what keeps you going. And if you can concentrate on that and let go and go, I'm stepping onto stage and whatever happens now is done or, or sit in the back of the theater and go, well, I've written this and my job is done. And I, however, this audience responds is however they, this audience responds. you know, if you can reach that level of enlightenment, which is really hard, but if you can, if you can aim for that, then that is what sustains you, you know, more than money, more than anything else, because, because there's no ladder. You're not going to get to the top. There is no top. 
Sometimes you'll do things that are more public than others, but you and I both know the country is filled with artists that most people have never heard of, but have had really sustainable, perfectly fine careers filled with joy and they're perfectly skilled. And, and that's, and that's where you kind of want to be. Um, so if you can find value in that and place the value in your artistry, then I think you're all right. That's how I would answer that. Apart from all the other things I would advise myself, like relax, chill out. It's okay to drink. It's fine. Well, not don't drink too much. Jesus. Don't want to give the wrong advice. But for me particularly, I was so uptight. Just relax, have fun, smile. You're all right. It's okay. That's um, yeah, no, that, that idea of how, of like where to put the enjoyment and where to find the enjoyment and that it's unsustainable in people because of that ebb and flow. And then pairing that with the idea of if, if you manage to set a goal and you finished it and you wrote that page or you, or you fix that character, then that should be your definition of success and not anything to do with wealth. So the pairing of enjoyment and a new definition of success, that is amazing. That sounds right. like, yeah. Good. Problem solved. Yeah. So there you go. Episode 19 is the last episode we're going to do. Everyone should be an artist <laughs> now, right? Yeah, we're all good. We're all perfect. All right. Well, thank you for solving the world's problems, uh, David no Burton. <laughs> right. You're welcome. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Grim. And that is the end of the 19th episode. I'm genuinely so excited to reach the landmark of 20 episodes. That's, yeah. Um, what I most enjoyed about this interview, though, was that there was this immense empathy for myself and people in in my position so so when i asked questions it felt like dave knew where it was coming from so he firstly addressed the question in whatever way he would and then he would continue and he would give information that furthered the question i had asked and it, it felt like it came from a place of understanding which was really nice it was genuinely a great interview and i had a lot of fun similar to the last episode it was just a lot of laughing and I felt very comfortable, which is really good. Uh, I hope this interview has helped you in, in some way. Uh, as always, if you'd like to get in contact with the podcast, then send an email to anactorandamike at gmail.com or swing a message to the Facebook page. Next episode is 20. Yay. In that episode, I speak to someone who is a huge advocate for disabled bodies on stage and her patience is one of her best qualities because I had to ask a lot of questions that I'm sure she has asked a lot. Uh, until then, keep making art and being spectacular. Spectacular.